I would never be a blonde hair, blue eyed fairy princess, and that those stories had nothing to do with Leaders me. all over the world have, have started to manipulate their populations. This poem is called Best Laid. It's clear the wind won't let up and it swims out. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Rhodes Humanities Forum. My name is Mimi Borders, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing poet, critic, educator, Maureen McLean on questions of form, hybridity, and the necessity of poetry in our everyday world. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thanks, Mimi. Glad to be here. I wanted to start off um, with some questions that act as a way to continue conversations that you were having yesterday um, at the symposium. And our theme um, is narratives of change. And so I'm interested how you view um, narrative as a form within your own work. Um, thinking about My Poets, your book, which is a hybrid of autobiography, biography, and um, critique, and how how form impacts how you write. Oh, it's a great and enormous question, and I'll I'll try my my best to pick up some some of the generous threads here. Um, yeah, uh, the rubric for the whole Humanities Forum, Narratives of Change, and 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 yesterday I had a, a wonderful conversation with Zara, and um, we talked a bit about uh, the book My Poets. And one of the things, I guess, um, coming to the forum as a poet uh, who often writes in, in more lyric keys, not mm -hmm. specifically overtly storytelling modes, um, but I have uh, surprised myself a few times <laughs> over the past 15 or so years where I did write in a more narrative key. And uh, My Poets was was probably um, the, the first and biggest work in that mode I did. And partly um, I, I was thinking in that book about telling in part the story of one's life as a story of uh, one's life as a reader and what it meant to encounter um, books, poets, figures that were incredibly important to me at certain junctures of my life and tell a kind of double story, both of myself um, in a kind of autobiographical key, but also sitting with the works of some of those poets and uh, covertly telling various things about what it was, for example, to be a student at Oxford or what it was to be thinking about um, Gosh, uh, all kinds of issues of sexuality and gender and marriage through the poet Percy Shelley, um, and so it it was a it was a book that was structured. I think there were about fourteen chapters, and each one um, uh, took wing from a particular poet. So everything from my Chaucer to my Shelley to my Louise Glick. Plenty of these were dead poets. Some of them were alive, <laughs> and each chapter. Some of them are in you might say normative prose, but some of them are written in verse. <laughs> some of them uh, have a kind of call and response of questions and, and then answers given uh, through poetic quotations. So it was a really interesting put, book to put together and, uh, and also a, a, a kind of challenge to stitch it together. So it would be readable and of interest to any possible reader. And, and one thing that was really important for me was this sense that while the book was called My Poets, I felt that the kind of attachment, um, interest, sometimes irritation with these figures, um, one could imagine 
people writing a book, my pop stars, my athletes. That sense of how we partly can tell stories about ourselves through our encounters with things that have made us and not only say actual kin or actual friends or actual lovers, but our reading experiences or our musical experiences. And that those things are just as valid in defining our sense of self. I think when I think of my poets, think of my Walt Whitman, mm. and I think of the way that as a 16-year-old black girl in Cincinnati, Ohio, Walt Whitman's words touched me in such a visceral, visceral, intimate way that at that point I knew that there was something transformative about poetry. That if is it could. fantastic. That is a fantastic juncture. Oh, that's fabulous. Yeah, and I think, I think that's really when I fell in love, one of the moments that I fell in love with poetry as a form, but I'm interested in kind of that, that way that poetry can act as a temporal bridge mm. and how you think time within a poem exists. So when we go into the poem, are we freezing time or does it act as a new space of time, a new temporality? Again, that's just, I mean, such a rich question. And, and it's something I, I, I try to think about a lot, um, both on my own and for myself and also with students and with friends. And, and I guess between the two options you gave me, I might think of it as um, not a freezing of time, but a uh, reorganization of our own sense of what temporal structure we're in. So, and, and, and another thing too is it depends what we might be talking about. Are we talking about Whitman's Song of Myself, right? Are we talking about a, a, a 52 verse poem that probably would take, I don't know, four hours to recite? I don't know. And, and, and um, the way that lyric epic holds time or asks you to sit with it is very different from, say, a haiku. And, and, and I also think that um, poems have allegiances to different time scales. You know, if you're thinking of uh, a massive epic that, that uh, might be something a community would listen to together versus a poem that's closer to a prayer that one might uh, turn to before going to sleep. Um, I think some, uh, I have a particular, I mean, I think one, one thing that early on attracted me to poetry as a form, it's interesting, Whitman was a, is a kind of shared, uh, figure between us, I think, um, also were musical forms, um, whether, whether, um, songs or hymns, things that I was familiar with from childhood. And so I really responded to, um, some poems of John Donne or poems of Emily Dickinson, and I, I wouldn't have been able to paraphrase them. I wouldn't, but they did have that quality of just seizing my brain, you know, and seizing my heart. And those kinds of poems, those lyric utterances, those poems that make a wager that they are being what brought forth in the time of the poem. That whenever somebody uh, says or reads, "I'm nobody. Who are you?" That's the present tense of the poem. As long as anybody is reading, I celebrate myself, I sing myself, and what I assume you shall assume, for every atom belonging to me is good belongs to you. That's a new now. And there's something about the endlessly beginnable now that, that lyric and, and epic can, can offer us. And so, um, so I'm fascinated by that, you know, that there's this endlessly 
uh, possible present tense, particularly with lyric utterance. But I'm also interested in these poems that are bigger and have uh, time shifts within them. Um, there's there's an amazing thing in Coleridge's uh, Dejection Ode, and and it begins well it begins with an epigraph from a ballad, which is an interesting bridge temporal bridge as you were you were talking about the idea that the poems themselves have memories and they often have memories of other poems and not just simply of the poet's own experiences and that's a um, a good example where Coleridge puts a little stanza from a ballad Sir Patrick spends at the beginning about fearing a deadly storm that's going to come, and then the whole poem is stationed on the edge of a storm. There's a wind coming, dusk is falling, that green light that lingers in the west that the poet speaker sees, and as this utterance is unfolding, the wind does come, <laughs> the storm does arrive, and the very last stanza, and this is a big uh, ode, you know, it has several stanzas, and in the last stanza begins, "'Tis midnight." And I always find that this heart-stopping moment. It's like the clock has struck, you know. And so there's this way in which this is a poem that is timing itself very concretely as an evening utterance against a storm, and the last stanza, actually a clock strikes. So I think that's one of the more astonishing moments in which the, the timing of the utterance of the poem aligns with uh, a diurnal clock or a nocturnal clock. And and then all sorts of things can happen in a in a micro key with tense shifts, you know. If um, there's a poem by Louise Glick, uh, Mock Orange, it's a pretty hilarious, total sexual shade poem. <laughs> it begins something like, "It is not the moon, I tell you. It is these flowers lighting the yard. I hate them as I hate sex. The man's mouth on my mouth," and it goes on and on. It's 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 sort of incredibly funny and terribly grim. And, but that sense of, it is not the moon, I tell you, the present tense of the utterance. And the whole poem is in that present tense of, of, a, of a, a speech act. So as you can see, I could just proliferate all these examples. But one of the things I find so amazing about poems is how they not only can hold time, but they can shape our experience of time. And you can suddenly be brought to the edge of an experience and then see it recede. You know, when Coleridge says, tis midnight. You know, or or you know, Whitman has these incredible prospective things. You know, um, you know, I, I stop somewhere waiting for you. You know, this sense of um, expectation that some poets leave us with—a kind of invitation toward futurity, an invitation towards a type of resilience, in some ways, for or some a hope poets. for it. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, my grandmother passed away in August mm -hmm. and I was biking along High Street and I just thought hope is the thing with feathers that mm. perches in the soul and I think in a way that shows how we can call upon these voices and these friends in a way that can move us forward or tell us it's okay to be, to be how we are, um, which is a lot more emotional and less theoretical. But in that way, I guess I was wondering, so your, your poetry is very lyrical. Do you start in a foundational place? Do you, do you have a home that you start in, I guess I'm thinking, in terms of your words? Do you have a certain 
um, form or method that you call upon more? Or do you sit by the window with a pen (laughs) and paper and just begin? I would say uh, I don't sit by a window with pen and paper (laughs) typically. I mean, that has happened in my life. But I often find that something comes back to me or Mm. as there's a line, I think... um, the poet Mahmoud Darwish says, and Paul Valery says a version of it, a rhythm seizes me. And that will sometimes happen. A phrase, maybe it's overheard. Mm-hmm. Maybe something has come back to me from another poet. And that's such a beautiful, painful example you gave and how these these things come back to us if we've internalized them. And they might spontaneously come back to us and, and both call us back to a moment when we first encountered something but move us forward, right, and and become a bridge toward some kind of resilience or continuity. For me, I one thing in terms of method, I end up, uh, I keep a lot of notebooks, and they're really a jumble of all kinds of things, notes to self, grocery lists, you know, but they also often have what turn out to be drafts of things, and they're often jottings of lines, Sometimes lines fall for me into verse forms. They might fall into something approximating a ballad stanza, or they might fall into something that looks haiku-ish. But I don't typically sit down and say, and now I shall write us on it, you know? Um, On the other hand, I have, uh, in the past couple of years, I asked friends to commission me to write them a poem, and... uh, uh, and I got some really interesting, you know, <laughs> commissions, some of which um, were, would you write a poem uh, in honor of my new baby? You know, these are wonderful, you know, th- those kinds of things. Or somebody wanted a triolet, so I'm like, okay, <laughs> you're going to get a triolet. Um, some people gave me commissions that were formally based. Sometimes they were thematically based. One friend, uh, Wendy Lee, sent me a picture of this beautiful bodhisattva, tiny uh Korean sculpture at the Met Museum and said, would you write something based on this? This is a, an object I love. So that's a way, and that's that's not the way I had tended to f- what pursue my writing. I mean, I would off, sometimes write occasional poems for friends, or, but not in this more systematic way. So that's been a new thing the past couple of years in my life in terms of the the writing that ultimately led to, to the books I published, it tended to be more uh, being struck or arrested by something and noting it and then going back to it and developing something. I, I organize a um, kind of academic network called Race and Resistance, and this week our discussion was about um, Poetry is Not a Luxury mm-hmm. by Audre Lorde. Fantastic. By Audre Lorde. Yeah. And so... I'm thinking about the ways in which, you know, she's not only talking about poetry, she's talking about the essence of who we are, but I'm wondering how you view the necessity of poetry in our lives today, in in your life specifically, in your politic, Um, how how does it maneuver and um, why is it important? You know, great, and there aren't more in a way, demanding questions. Um, yeah, I think of I think of Lord and Adrian Rich and Gwendolyn Brooks. I think of them too as in a in a line with people ever since 
you know, the late 18th century and various revolutions in terms of thinking about the relationship between poetry and the human and poetry and revolution. And those are complex relationships. Uh, but that's one of the reasons in um, my academic life, I work a lot on the British Romantic period, in part because I f- it's a fascinating period. And a lot of the writers I'm interested in took on this question. What is the relationship between poetry and politics? What is the relationship between poetry and liberation? What, and I think these are um, not settled, right? They endlessly have to be recalibrated. And you know, and the fact that, that Lord had to write or was called to write an essay manifesto, right, in which poetry um, uh, arguing against this as an extra, right? And I also think we're in an incredible moment where people are pluralizing what they think the ends and aims of poetry might be. And you see this, I think, um, in the U.S. in terms of just a, a vivification of so many fascinating books, whether, you know, Laylee Long Soldier's um, Whereas or Claudia Rankin's uh, Citizen or Robin Cost Lewis's mm. amazing Voyage of the Sable mm. Venus. That is my favorite book of all time. Tell me if I'm describing it correctly. The idea of uh, making a poem out of, of catalog entries of objects in uh, primarily European and North American museums that have any uh, black figure or character and including the what would it would have been the descriptive text, but it's a kind of inventory of curatorial discourse over centuries. Exactly. And it's um, uh, a kind of appalling, elegant festival of racist and racialized language. And it's sort of this counter-inventorying. And it's, it's just an extraordinary work. We don't have that much time left, but I really want you to read a poem. Oh, okay. <laughs> sure. Can you, um, can you read Best Laid? It sort of takes wing from a phrase in a Robert Burns poem that people might know the aphorism, the best laid plans of mice and men, gang after glay, go off and awry. So this poem is called Best Laid. It's clear the wind won't let up and a swim's out. What you planned is scotched. Forget the calls, errands at the mall. Your resolve's superfluous as a clitoris. How miraculous the gratuitous spandrels cathedrals on a sea of necessity let's float wholly unnecessary and call that free the roads humanities forum podcast was edited by me christy calloway gale and brought to you by the roads trust the music you heard was happy ukulele by scottholmesmusic.com <laughs>